You're listening to the Elim Church Northampton podcast. This message was recorded live as part of our regular Sunday service. We know that this is a great investment into your life. So tune in and give it a listen. For more information, visit elimnorthampton.com. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it annoying, unintelligent, crass, somewhat opportunistic, and frankly, at times inappropriate for people to use their whole sermon to advertise the ministry they're involved in. So I thought instead of doing that, I'd just talk about EA for a few minutes and then crack on with the sermon, if that's all right. So the Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 with two aims. One, unite evangelicals in reaching the lost in every part of the United Kingdom. Two, give the church a clear, effective and united voice into every layer of society. Now let's just deal with that evangelical word for a start, because let's be honest, it's not redundant, but it needs redeeming a bit, doesn't it? Really, it's from the word evangel, good news. We are good news people in a bad news world. And we need to be clear about what we mean by it. It means four things. One, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Stop changing scripture to baptise culture and start changing culture with the truth in the pages of the Word of God. (laughs) Secondly, the death and resurrection of Jesus, single most important thing in human history. Thirdly, the need for conversion. You don't come to faith by osmosis. Everyone doesn't end up in heaven anyway. You get on your knees and you meet your saviour. And fourthly, the need to be active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals led the abolition of the slave trade, provided education before anyone else. In recent years, have come up with and delivered Christians Against Poverty, food banks, street pastors. Another thing about being an evangelical is accepting that no one part of the church is going to change the UK on its own. I love Elim. I really do love Elim. But I also love the other 79 network streams and denominations that are part of the Evangelical Alliance wanting to make Jesus known in our day. And we're a membership organisation made up of 3,000 churches, 500 organisations and about 22,000 individuals coming together to try and make Jesus known. We say go deep in your locality. We should never get in your way locally. Go for it. Crack on. Reach your place. Love your postcode. But be connected to the national story too. And a lot of what we do is advocacy in the corridors of power. To encourage you, our our access to the corridors of power across all four parliaments of the UK and beyond is better than it's been in living memory. There's a reason for that. There was a pandemic at which point everyone needed help. They got us in the room. They just didn't realise it's hard to get us out again. We're meeting with people at every layer of society to speak up for the Christian voice and to say what matters to Jesus. Some of it's really controversial. We talk out on issues like conversion therapy legislation. Now, let me be clear. We are against all abusive practices and think that's absolutely outrageous. But we also think the church has to be free to be the church. We speak out about end-of-life care, abortion, other things. But we also speak out on some really exciting things. How is the church serving its nation? What difference can we make? We fight for the religious liberty so you cannot be stopped saying that Jesus is the only way to God. He's not an option. He's not a lifestyle choice. He's not a hobby. He's not one of many deities. He is the way, the truth and the life. And we want to keep speaking up and out on the issues that matter on behalf of the UK church. And so I guess... People often say to me, what difference does it make when you speak up on issues? So to give a practical example, my favourite one in my eight and a half years at EA was when the government said they wanted to offstead all youth work and Sunday schools. Do you remember that in the news? It's absolutely bonkers, ridiculous suggestion. There's going to be public regulation of private religion. At what point did I move to Saudi Arabia? I mean, this is, this is an unbelievable infringement on religious liberty. 
How can a faith illiterate culture decide how well we're discipling our children? That makes no sense. It's an absolute state overstep into public life, bringing private faith into that space. So we went into the corridors of power and said, on behalf of all our membership, this is outrageous. There's no way you can do this. And for now, it's kicked into the long grass. Why? Because we spoke with one voice. Friends, go deep locally, love your place, but be connected to the national story. And I guess what I'm asking you is, would you become part of the national story as an individual too? Within our culture, I'm sure you've noticed, individualism is rife. So we get asked in the corridors of power a lot, how many individually paid members do you have? The only reason the membership's paid, by the way, is because that's what we get asked in those spaces. If it's a free membership, it's like a Facebook group. It doesn't carry any clout when you're trying to speak on behalf of the church. But we get asked, how many paid individuals do you have? And so we've realised we need to get more individuals with us because the culture doesn't realise there's people like you and me. I met with one of the main political parties. I won't say which one because I don't want to. And I met with them and afterwards I got an email that basically said, I didn't realise there were such warm, kind, relatable people as you with such hateful views. (laughs) In our culture so often the loudest boos come from the cheapest seats and we need to show people the scale of the church. So we've set a target in the next 10 years to go from what was 18,000, though we're at 22 now, 18,000 individual members to 50,000. There's two reasons for this. Reason one, that's the same size as the Liberal Democrats. Why does that matter? If there's a new Prime Minister and we've got 50,000 individual EA members, they ring me, not the other way around, to see what does the church need at this moment in the culture. Secondly, for everyone signed up, there's an acceptance that it counts as more than one. You know, a bit like when you complain to the BBC, they know that about 1,000 people are upset because you complained. Everyone signed up, that counts for at least 20, 25 people. So 50,000 individuals is legitimately of more than a million people. In addition, 3,000 churches, 500 orgs. I am not one to get rightsy, but I am one to say I am not letting the United Kingdom capitulate to a secular tsunami when there's so many Christians on the ground. We just need to stand up, speak up, act up, live up and pray up and, not, and say, not on our watch is this nation going to the dogs. So I unashamedly ask you, if you're not a personal member, could you just become one? It costs a cup of coffee a month. We're never going to put the price up, by the way. We might for new people at some point. It might become outrageously £4 a month, but it's £3 a month. That's as an individual or as a couple. If you're married, sign up as a couple. Don't even check with your spouse. Counts as two when I go to the Equality and Human Rights Commission this week. But here's the thing, friends. Numbers do matter. Standing together does matter. We won't put the price up, but as long as you've got a pulse, would you please become a personal member of the EA? We need to stand together. We need to speak up, act up and live up. This nation needs to be one for Jesus. And the prayer of Jesus in John 17 was that the church would be so united, the world would know and the world would come to know Jesus. What's more united than 80 streams of the church saying, we're all in this together. There's all of us. We're going for this and we're going to try and change the nation. Now, if you will sign up, I'm going to give you a present, one of these boxes. Why? I like you. Why else? Let me be honest with you. I am a proper Marmite figure in the UK. Lots of people hate me for what I do. I get lots and lots of messages on social media in a very unkind way, pointing that out to me. We need the people that are with us to stand with us. And if you're watching online, eauk.org forward slash join us. But in the room, just love you to come and see me at the end. Sign up and I'll give you one of these boxes. In here, there's a few presents for you. To be honest, right, I've said to my board, I'll do this for at least another decade. For another decade, I'll try and unite the church in reaching the lost and speak up on the hard issues. That comes with a certain price tag. But what we need in the midst of that is a load of people to say, we'll stand in this together. 
I'll give you whatever it takes. I can help one of you with a kidney. Anyway, <coughs> in this box, a copy of mine and my wife's latest book, Unleashed. What does it mean to live like the Acts Church today, ministering in words, works and wonders? One of my favourite EA resources, Speak Up. We did this with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. We'd had enough of Christians deciding what they could or couldn't do in sharing the gospel and deciding that from the media. You know, the media runs a story every so often of someone getting arrested or whatever for preaching. There are a million faith sharing moments a week in the UK. And yet there's three or four stories in the media a year. No one gets arrested for sharing the gospel. They get arrested for doing something else while sharing the gospel. We need to be serious about what our freedoms and rights are to share the gospel. So we did this with the Lawyers Christian Fellowship, one of our member organisations. What does it mean to speak up? You have more legal freedom in the United Kingdom to share the gospel than just about any country on earth. Use those freedoms or your children and your children's children won't have them. Here's the other thing as well. People say to me, how do I not get in trouble for sharing my faith at work? Do you want my tip, a genuine tip? Share your faith more. You might say, what, how does that work? Here's the thing. Your faith is a protected characteristic in law. As is your gender, your sexuality, your race, your faith is a protected characteristic in law. If you don't talk about your faith ever, and then once every three years try to get everyone to come to church and become a Christian in 10 seconds, that is naughty. If you talk about your faith all the time, you're utterly protected in law. So actually the irony is the more you talk about your faith, the more legal protection you have to talk about your faith. So we're not not sharing our faith because we're not allowed to, it's just because we're chickens. So I think a bunch of us just need to start talking about Jesus at work. And it's not, you know, a three-point sermon with a response at the end. It's just tomorrow, tell your people at work what you did on Sunday, not Saturday. Let's just talk about our faith more, then we've got more space. And let's protect our children by using our rights whilst we have them. And then finally, there's a couple of other things in here. But finally, if this doesn't swing the deal, I'm genuinely out of ideas. It's an EA key ring. Bear with me. This bit's got a logo on. It's a fake detachable quid. In our increasingly cashless society, when you need a supermarket trolley, you'll be so grateful you join the Evangelical Alliance. <laughs> when you need a locker at the gym, happy days. All I ask is each time you use it, would you genuinely pray the three things I use mine as a prompt to pray? I pray that the church would be united in this land. I pray that the voice of the church would be heard effectively in the corridors of power. And I pray that together we'd make Jesus known. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we do just pray those three things now. We pray firstly, Lord, that your church would be united. We pray that here in Northampton. Pray that your church would be one. We pray that the voice of your church would be heard effectively in the corridors of power. Lord, from local councils to, to Westminster governments and everything in between, I just pray, Lord, that brave people would keep speaking up. And I pray you'd help us at the EA to represent our membership in the best way possible. And I pray, Lord, that together we'd make you known. I thank you, Lord, that church in this nation can do something no one else can. It can bring together every age, every ethnicity, every background as family. I pray that our unity would be so infectious the world would come to know you. And Lord, as we turn to your word now, would you speak to us? Lord, whether it's through me or in spite of me, I don't mind. But would you speak to your children today? I also pray we'd have fun. Why would your family gather and not have fun? So as I share with my friends over the next 19 or 20 hours or so, we just invite you to speak, Lord. Amen. If you've got a Bible, would you turn it on or open it up? We're going to go to Psalm 16. It's page 469 in my Bible, if that helps. It's 
Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. I think our problem so often is we misunderstand what's in front of us. We misunderstand how we should hold ourselves. We misunderstand what the Lord brings. If you have the wrong information, you come to a misunderstanding, don't you? I had one not that long ago. I was uh, driving to go and preach in Birmingham. And just to explain, um, I live in London, so I don't need a car most of the week. And so I hire a car at the weekend. We go to Europe car. We just order a course, the cheapest car possible. Do it most weeks. In return, though, it's slightly awkward sometimes at some churches because Europe car want to look after me because I order so often. So they give me the best car they have available, not the courser I've ordered. This occasionally causes problems. They have a yellow Mercedes worth about 90 grand that they like to give me from time to time. And if I have that, I have to park about a mile away from the church because this really is the wrong impression. But fortunately today I've got a red Seat, so that kind of fits okay. <coughs> but I was driving to preach in Birmingham and I stopped at the Warwick services for a coffee. I went and got my coffee, went back to the car and was preparing to reverse when a big white police van with blue flashing lights pulled up behind me, stopping me reversing. Two policemen got out of the car, whacked on the front window and made it clear I needed to get out where they could see my hands. I got out of the car, they said, where did you get this stolen car from? I said, Europe car. They said, where are you going? I said, to preach at a church in Birmingham. I gave them the paperwork, it diffused quite quickly. As you can see, on a Sunday, I dress like a geography teacher, so I don't look too threatening. But I asked them what had gone on and they said that the car was marked as stolen on the police database. Four ANPR cameras had gone off between my home in northwest London and the Warwick services. When I pulled into the services, a warning went out for any police within 10 minutes to come and apprehend this car thief. Do you know my great relief? I stopped. Can you imagine if I'd gone straight to the church? <laughs> Doesn't matter how much a church loves the EA, if you turn up and get arrested, you're in trouble, aren't you? I think at the moment, the culture is making us misunderstand what's going on. The culture is hopeless. The culture is offering nothing. The culture is giving us all these messages. The culture wants to tell us we're finished. And sometimes we don't help with that, by the way. I got asked to endorse a Christian book recently called The Church is a Generation Away from Extinction. Why do we do that sort of thing? I, I politely said no whilst thinking of other things they could do with the manuscript, right? Why would we write a book about the church as if we're talking about it failing is sensationalist and draws attention? Anything is one generation away from extinction. So it's a nonsense to make the statement anyway. 
I think we mustn't get pulled into this hopeless narrative when we believe in a God who changes everything. And that's why I love this psalm. It's basically an Easter psalm ringing with hope. God will preserve the psalmist in verse 1. God is his goodness, verse 2. God is his inheritance, 5 and 6. God is always before him, verse 8. God gives hope, verse 9. God is not the God of death, verse 10, but of life, verse 11. And because Jesus took refuge in the Father, verse 1, for the sake of saving a holy people, verse 3, the Father saw his innocence, verse 4, and raised him from the dead, verse 10. He declared him to be the true Holy One and brought him back to heaven to reign at his right hand forever, verse 11. You know, the resurrection of Christ based on this psalm means what God promises he delivers. Isn't that amazing? What he promises he delivers. We are held by this hope until we see Jesus face to face, but his promises will not come back empty. I think we live in an instant culture. We expect everything yesterday. But if you look at scripture, people wait a long time, but the waiting is never in vain because the promise is never empty. And we in our day need to hold on to what we know and go for it in making Jesus known. And I think there are three things this passage tells us that the Lord gives that are so important for our day. First is this in verse one, the Lord gives refuge. Psalm 16 suggests very strongly the greatest blessing for those who take refuge in God alone is actually just your relationship with him. Sometimes we, we keep asking for other things, but the greatest benefit of trusting God is not what he gives us. It's the fact that we have a relationship with him in the first place. Again, I think in our culture, we're taught, want more, want more, be dissatisfied. When I was eight years old, I knew that if I got a Sega Master System, my whole life would be wonderful because I'd have the greatest game system in the world, right? If you are under 35, you've never heard of a Sega Master System. And when I got given my Sega Master System, within three weeks, the Sega Mega Drive that was twice as good came out. And suddenly this gift that had been the greatest gift I'd ever been given looked like a pile of rubbish because my friend next door got Sonic the Hedgehog on the Mega Drive and he had twice as much capability and the Mega Drive is about 5% as powerful as a PS5. Friends, the world will tell us what you get, what you collect, what you have is, what is what you should be doing. The, the Bible tells us Verse two, apart from you, I have no good thing. We must be satisfied, we must be fulfilled and we must be delighted in the fact that God gives us refuge. God is enough. My grandma had Alzheimer's disease. She had it as badly as you can have it. And it's really painful. I don't know if anyone here has lived through that with relatives. It's really painful when you see a relative disappear before your eyes as they lose their mind and things. She had it as bad as she could have it. The last eight years of her life, she sat in a corner of a nursing home dribbling on a teddy bear. She couldn't talk. The friends had all gone. She had one child. My dad was one of four grandchildren. She didn't recognise any of us. But she'd been a Christian for over 60 years. Where is Jesus when you've lost your mind? And my mum went in to see my grandma on her birthday. My mum did it for her benefit, not my grandma's, because my grandma doesn't know what a birthday was, let alone presents or anything else, or didn't recognise my mum. And my mum is sat in my, grandma, in my grandma's bedroom and she turns to her and says, can I pray with you? Now, my grandma couldn't talk, so being a good evangelical Christian that my mum is, she took the silence as the yes she wanted to hear. 
My mum began to pray that this dear old lady would know peace in the midst of mental torture. When my mum finished praying, she opened her eyes and my grandma's eyes were shut. She thought, isn't that wonderful? Just a bit of peace. But then something incredible happened. For the only time in her last eight years of life, my grandma spoke as she prayed. She said, I don't know who I am and I don't know what I am and I don't know where I am, but Lord Jesus, please love me. Friends, you can even lose your mind, but you don't lose Jesus. He is our refuge and he promises that to us. And only when we have made God our absolute master will we experience the full security of dwelling in him. I think for many of us, myself most certainly included, there are too many other things that sometimes take the place and they need to go down. Anything that takes your attention off the Lord is an idol and those idols need to fall so we find true refuge in him. God himself is David's refuge everywhere, regardless of place. It's a mirror image of the faith of Psalm 11 and this really matters because when you hear refuge, I don't know what you think, but I think of like a retreat centre. I think I'm going to have some refuge. Um, I'm going to hang out somewhere or a holiday. I'm going to take refuge before returning. But this psalm talks about the fact that God is our refuge everywhere. So a refuge of God is not something you go to. It's a constant companion. God is a constant companion, but so is the fact he's our refuge. So whatever you're facing tomorrow morning, God is your refuge as you go into what may feel like hostile territory. God is your refuge as you delight in your family. God is your refuge in every space you find yourself. I find that so helpful because I go into loads of places where, to be honest, I feel like I'm on hostile territory and I'm speaking up for the church and no one there seems to want to hear it and it's hard work, but I tell you what, God is still my refuge. And I think in our nation, we're living in wartime, not peacetime spiritually. I think there's lots up for grabs in this next decade. And I think we need to know that we need to make some brave moves, but God will be our refuge in that. So he's our refuge. But secondly... Verses two to seven, he's our confidence. Now, not false or overconfidence. Too many of us have false confidence or overconfidence. That's not what we're looking for. When you encounter someone with overconfidence, it sometimes goes wrong, doesn't it? I realised this when my sister got married. My sister got married to a Brazilian guy and they got married in America. Now, in America, they don't really do speeches like we do here in England. And so she said, after, at the reception, will you do a speech that kind of makes people laugh a bit, tells a few stories and kind of wraps it all together? I said, yeah, that's fine. So in preparing for this speech, um, I thought, what present could I give them? I thought, what do you get if you marry England and Brazil? You get the best footballer ever. Because <laughs> you get Brazilian ability with English desire, right? And so I went and bought an England and a Brazil football top and I took them to this shop to get them sewn together with like Mr. and Mrs. on the back. And when I went to this shop, the sewing machine shop, the woman there acted with complete overconfidence. She looked at me, she said, we'll just cut them down the middle, we'll use this stitch on the machine, we'll merge the two um, fabrics from the collars together and it'll all be fine. I looked at her and said, you can't do that. If you merge those two fabrics together and sew the stitch straight down the middle of the shirt, it will never maintain in a wash. I said, what you need to do is you need to go diagonally from the top to the bottom. You need to set up the machine in this way, do the bobbin in this way, do the stitch in this format and not compromise the collars so it maintains itself and lasts. She looks at me like, where did you learn to sew? Prison? <laughs> what she didn't realise was at my school, you had to do either woodwork, cooking or sewing for GCSE. And I wasn't allowed to do woodwork because of previous inappropriate use of tools. 
So the only A I got in my whole time at school was in sewing. <laughs> and the reason I say this is, we're not talking here about misplaced confidence. We're talking about genuine confidence in the Lord. We find in verse 2, the psalmist's declaration to the Lord. In verse 3, his delight to the Lord's people. And in verse 4, his dedication to the Lord's service. Now, too often with Scripture, we need to also ask, what does it look like? Especially working with younger generations, because too often we say, what does it say? But what does it look like? Because the Bible is the most visual book. I don't know if you ever asked this as you study various things. I've been to Israel a couple of times and you realise that there's a reason why Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount where he does. Because when you go to Eremos Heights, you can be heard speaking as clearly 800 metres away as you can a metre away. When you made the world, you don't need a microphone. You just need to remember where you left each of your amphitheatres. Equally, you know, I remember going to Lazarus' tomb and you realise why Jesus says, Lazarus, come out when you go to Lazarus' tomb. Because there's space in there for 20 dead people. If Jesus stood out the front and just said, come out, all 20 would have walked out at once. It's like a Scooby-Doo moment as all the corpses come to life. It's kind of lucky Lazarus wasn't a common name. Imagine if there are three of them. Oh, not you, sunshine, go back to sleep. Not you, it's that one I want. In this passage, David is writing as a fugitive. His experience as a fugitive means he's lost his safety and security. When he talks about God being his refuge and God being his confidence, it's in a context even harder than anything we're facing. Yet in his loss, he is able to declare in verse 5, the Lord himself is his portion. This is a fact in which he can really delight, verse 6. And this is a God to whose obedience he will all more gladly dedicate himself. Verse 7. It's amazing when you see how insecure he must have felt as a fugitive, but the reassurance he gets from the Lord. The Lord is our refuge, but he's also our confidence. We too have to live with confidence. I've never understood why the church is lacking in confidence. We know the end of the story. When you know the end of the story, it changes everything, doesn't it? I remember when I was a young man going on a dreadful first date with someone, I didn't marry them, so it's fine, to watch that Titanic film. <coughs> we were there for three and a half hours and then the boat sank. I knew that before I went. <laughs> when you know the end of the story, it must change how you live in the middle. Church, we need to rediscover our confidence because we know the end of the story. No matter how many bad things happen before now and the end of time, no matter how many pandemics, how many wars, how much persecution, how much death, no matter how many good things happen, no matter how many revivals there are, renewals there are, no matter how many World Cups England win, and I mean the proper one, the round ball, not the oval rubbish, you know, no matter how many of those things happen, the end of the story remains the same. Jesus wins. And it sometimes disturbs me how little we live in the confidence of that. It's time for us to find our confidence because we have our refuge. And I thank the Lord for reverse mission. If you're not used to that term, what that means is missionaries coming to the UK from all over the world. Especially where I live in London. I mean, all the church growth is from people coming here as missionaries and, and, and coming and raising the bar for the rest of us. And I just thank the Lord for that. Do you know why? There's no British in heaven. There's just brothers and sisters. We've helped people historically. Boy, do we need help now. But what we learn as well is, is I'm learning more confidence from people I'm meeting that are coming here as missionaries. It's like my great friend who's Ugandan, who came here as a missionary. He arrived at Heathrow Airport. He'd never been on a plane before he came here. He's got a decision to make. Gets his bags, something to declare or nothing to declare. So he goes through something to declare. 
And he says, I declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and by believing you'll have life. The guy in customs looks at him like, what's going on with you? And he says, I declare that Jesus died for you. And they let him in. (laughs) Friends, have we forgotten our confidence? We have something to live, but we have something to declare. God is our refuge. We don't lose that. He is also our confidence. And thirdly, he's our hope. Verses 8 to 11, he's our hope. Right now, the nation feels more hopeless than it's felt in a while. I was listening to a bit of Radio 5 Live this morning on my way here. And they were discussing how on the Laura Koonsberg show this morning, you may have seen it if you weren't in the first service, I haven't seen it. But on there, they were getting 50 voters in who were kind of swing voters in marginal seats, different places in, in the UK. And these 50 voters, the overwhelming sense from what they were sharing was there was nothing to hope for. And every political decision they would make in an election year was not a positive one. It was a negative one. So I'll vote for them because they're not them. Or I'll vote for them because they won't do that. There was no sense of hope. And then you add that to the landscape of our nation. Have you noticed how, how hopeless so much of it feels? And yet we're people of hope. This is the time for the church to sing a different tune. I remember after the uh, last lockdown, I went on a Radio 4 show with two secular humanist academics. Now, the problem with my job is I end up often debating with people with brains the size of planets. And with the greatest respect, right? I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. When God was giving out the huge brains, he gave those to others. He gave me good looks. And, <laughs> and so I'm on this debate. And these two people, these academics beyond anything I've known, are basically talking about the state of the nation. And all they're doing is making me feel worse. Because they're, they're dissecting the nation and they're just making everything feel so much worse. And I'm sat there and I, I'm, a, I'm a positive person. By the end of this, I'm thinking, oh, I'm done then. Stuff it. It sounds awful. Then the host says, Reverend Calvo, what do you think? And I'm like, I just think it's really sad that these two guys gifted such intellect can do nothing in this time of hopelessness other than create greater hopelessness. So I didn't think I could feel more hopeless than I did coming in and I do. I said, you see, for me, my whole life's different. You see, hope for me is not a concept. Hope is a name. His name is Jesus. And when you stand on the unchanging one, when you live for Jesus and with Jesus, everything's different. You see everything differently. And life looks completely different because you see, he's the rock of ages who never fails you, never lets you down and is with you. And then I did something you're not allowed to do on the BBC. I started a gospel appeal. I said, if you don't know Jesus, your personal Lord and Saviour. And I I got about two thirds of the way through and they stopped me, cut me off. But I tell you what, if you do it live, you can have a go. But here's the thing. If you listen to the mood music around you, it's all hopeless. But if you look to Jesus, it's all hopeful. And let's own it though. Most of us feel more fragile than we felt at other times. That's okay. Fragility is all relative. If you don't walk with a limp, I don't trust you. Because you're either delusional or you live in Disneyland. We've all got limps. But here's the thing. Can you imagine limping around without Jesus? It's all about posture. You see, life is hard and we feel fragile, but this is not a time to make ourselves feel better. It's a time to reach those who don't know Jesus. We've got to go out with our hope and share it. And it was because of David's intimate relationship with the Lord, verse 8, that he would be sure there'd be life after exile, even more so life after death. Again, what does this look like? David's writing about his eschatological hope in going to eternal life, and Jesus is a long way from coming to the earth. In fact, Jesus hasn't even been called Jesus yet. 
He was there from the beginning, but he's called Jesus when he comes to earth. Do you know why? Because in Jewish families, you're given the name of what you are intended to become. What your parents hope you to be is the name you're given. Jesus means saviour, redeemer. So he's only called Jesus when he comes to earth, but he's in existence at this point. And yet here's David talking about his hope in Jesus rising from the dead. Yet he's not seeing. This is amazing. And yet here am I thinking, well, it's a bit odd in the UK, bit of cost of living crisis, a little bit of moderate marginalisation. It's not looking good politically. The weather's been a bit bad. I mean, come on, join us in the real world and look upwards to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will look strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The final verse of Psalm 16 celebrates our faith that heaven is real and and will fully satisfy forevermore. And there's an even more explicit link between the promise of resurrection in 16, 9 to 11 and Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Peter quoted these verses in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost and applied them to Jesus, as did Paul in Acts 13. This proves, and this is important, that Jesus' death and resurrection had always been at the heart of God's plan for salvation. You know, God, God knows what's coming and what's happening. And his plan had always been to redeem his people. And here is David clinging on to that hope. If David could hope in his day with what he was facing, we can do so in ours. And I think, I have to say, I think we're living in the most exciting time to let this all overflow to the world around us that has been in my lifetime. For 25 years, I've been going around the UK preaching the gospel. And I'm the kind of person, I'll talk to a lamppost about Jesus. I'm just that person. I'm that person that annoys people by overdoing it a bit. I love the tube. I love getting on the tube in the rush hour with my Christian mate. We stand under a couple of people's armpits each, right in the middle of a big bunch. Everyone's silent on the tube, so what we do is talk really loudly about Jesus. If anyone shows any interest, boom, divide and conquer, right? (laughs) It occasionally works, but I'll tell you something, we'll keep trying. My friend Pastor Agu, who runs the Redeemed Christian Church of God, said to me recently, Gav, you've got the wrong personality for your nationality. He says, you're much more Nigerian than you are British. I'm like, cool, that's a compliment, good. But here's the thing, it's going to take all people to reach all people. I really believe we've had a sin in the church and it's been the sin of outsourcing the witnessing of the church to a few big mouths. A few larger than life people tell stories, move about on platforms, strutting around. I can't imagine the type. And these people, we think they'll do it for us. It's nonsense. The Great Commission, every single disciple must share their hope with other people. Otherwise, are we disciples? It's just a normal part of Christian living. But we've also done something wrong in that we've worshipped decisions. We have honoured decisions above anything else. On average, it takes seven people to lead someone to be a lifelong disciple. So therefore, we need to make this a team game again, not an individual pursuit. Let's not hide behind courses and programmes and Christmas services. They'll all do the stuff they do anyway. A church like this will always give you time to help. But let's go as individuals to share our hope. I really believe that the church is being taken back to the original plan which is one person reaches one person, reaches one person, reaches one person. We did this research called Talking Jesus in 2015 as EA. It found that one in five non-Christians want a conversation with a Christian friend about Jesus. Isn't that exciting? You only need five friends. I can do that. We redid it in 2022. 
You don't need five friends anymore. It's now one in three. One in three non-Christians in the UK want a conversation with a Christian friend about their faith. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to hear a sermon series. Disappointing though, Jason, I and others find that. They don't even want to go on a course. They just want to chat to you about your hope. When we link that into the fact we're free to talk about our hope, there's like a massive open goal in front of us. But here's the thing, just as the one in five has become one in three, as the chaos and trauma of the last few years eases off a bit, that one in three may go back up again. This is the moment for the church. We've prayed for revival. We've believed things could happen and we've got an openness in our culture. I also believe we've got to own the fact that people want to talk about something greater than the despair in front of them. The last word of the year was permacrisis for the UK. The idea that we're living in a permanent state of crisis, yet into that crisis comes hope. Into that crisis comes a refuge available to all. Into that crisis comes a confidence to navigate the day. And into that crisis, we must bring our hope as an overflow. I've definitely found in recent times that people are far more open. I went to a funeral and this guy comes up to me. He's in his mid-20s. He's got muscles popping out of everywhere, right? I don't normally notice a man's physical appearance, but this guy was in proper good shape. As he walked towards me, it was like we're looking in a mirror. <laughs> and, and he came up to me and started having a go at me. He started saying, you and your wife used to do a programme on TBM. Why did you stop? My mum's really cross with you. You must do more shows. I'm like, mate, we can't do everything. I'm sorry. He said, no, you didn't hear me. My mum is cross with you. Do more shows. I said, I'm really sorry, mate. We can't. He said, well, let me tell you something. During the very last of the lockdowns, I got so bored that I watched four of your shows and I gave my life to Jesus. Friends, those shows weren't evangelistic. Because of Ofcom, you can't do gospel appeals. It was me and Anne sat on a sofa talking about a Bible passage. You have to do less in this season for people to be drawn towards Jesus. We've spent too long thinking about the most innovative, insightful, incredible ways to lure people back to church. You don't need to do that at the moment. You just need to speak of how, why are you living by a different posture to those around you? Why are you hopeful when others around you aren't? Why are you doing different things with your money when we're being told at the moment, store it away because actually, you know, who knows what's coming? Nah, plough it into a new building so you can reach Northampton for Jesus. You know, why are we holding ourselves differently? Why are we living differently? Why are we different to the culture? And if we're not different to the culture, what do we need to do to be different to the culture? But friends, this is our moment. This is absolutely our moment. And I have prayed and prayed and prayed for a major move of God in the UK. And I really believe the circumstances are available for it to happen. But for it to happen, we have to accept God is our refuge. Therefore, he goes with us everywhere. That's a game changer, you know. If, honestly, write that in your diary tomorrow. All day today, God is my refuge. It's a game changer. Because you stop looking at a person in front of you and deciding on the context of the room by that person. And you start realising, that's me and Jesus in here. But then he's also our confidence. You know, let's be honest, I want everyone to love me, but I've picked the wrong job. (laughs) But if God's pleased with me, that's enough. Now, if everyone else is too, wonderful. But I just need the Lord to be pleased with me, the Lord to be with me as my confidence. And then as we share hope, hope is the name, his name is Jesus. He changes everything. Do you know what, friends? I really believe a major move of God is going to spring up somewhere in the UK pretty soon because the circumstances are just there for it. I also know from my keen reading of revival history, it never happens in capital cities. It starts somewhere else that floods the nation. (coughs) It often has to start somewhere. It's a big enough conurbation to be significant, but a little bit away from, from where the corridors of power are. This feels ideal. But do you know what I think is going to happen? 
I think it's going to start to change when enough people say, I'm in, Lord. I'm in. Witnessing's a team game, not an individual pursuit. We're going to pray as a church for these 150 names, believing breakthrough is going to come. We're going to dust ourselves down and say, that prodigal I've prayed for for 20 years and given up hope on, I'm going to start praying again because we're in a new season. That neighbour I invited to seven things, they never came. I'm going to try again. Why? Because it's a new season. Friends, do not play today's season by yesterday's rules. Anything you've done in your witnessing before the pandemic, and I know it feels a while ago, is not that relevant to now. Now is the time to shake the dust off, look ourselves in the mirror and say, here I am, Jesus, use me. And here's the thing, church. We must celebrate together. The enemy wants to make it a solo pursuit. So someone does work, someone leads a friend to Jesus. That person feels great about themselves. We all feel absolute pants because it wasn't us. Nonsense. Someone in this church leads someone to Jesus. This church has worship even at another level to what we've had this morning because we join in that party that takes place in heaven. Someone in this church struggles in their witnessing. We journey together. And here's the thing too. Let's not just celebrate decisions. Let's celebrate the person who's anti, who's then moderately interested. The person who's interested to warm, warm to decision, decision to disciple. I just think we're living in a different day. And I really believe in front of us is the biggest open goal available. If we turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, then the things of the earth seem strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If we keep our focus on Jesus, our refuge, our confidence and our hope, then we could see something amazing. Let's pray, shall we? (coughs) Everyone's eyes are shut. But when I was at school, every school report apart from PE said three words, could do better. Not even should, but just could. Like if you bothered applying yourself, you could do better. And I just wonder if for some of us, it's not a moment of condemnation in any way, but it's a moment of saying, Lord, I long to be someone who helps lead other people towards yourself. Lord, I long to be a signpost for others. Lord, I long to play my part in your great commission. Lord, I long to to perhaps do better and be more fruitful in my outreach to others. Lord, I long to be part of a church that sees many come to know you and that reaches out to them together. I wonder if that's you today. If you, the longing of your heart is for God to equip and anoint you to be a more effective witness this year than you've ever been. And for some of us, that will be a decision level. For some, it'll be a discipleship one. For some, actually, it'll be about going to places other Christians can't go and, and speaking of the hope we have in Jesus. But actually, if, if you're sensing in your heart, Lord, the longing of my heart is to be a more effective witness in your hands this year. I'd just love to pray for you. And if that is you, I wonder if if you're able, if you just stand where you are. (coughs) Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for those stood before me today. I pray, Lord, you would anoint and equip and empower them to be the most effective witnesses possible for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, you would use them. I pray, Lord, you would bless them. And I pray, Lord, you would do what only you can do. Lord, would you equip and anoint, we ask. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And there's just one other thing which I feel specifically to this service, actually, I feel like 
the Lord wants to bring hope back to some people that have been desperate for a prodigal. Probably a family member, but maybe a friend. But a prodigal who's been part of the church and left and you're just the greatest longing of your heart is for that prodigal to come home. And if you're honest, you need the people of God to help you believe again that it's possible. That, that, that your prayers of your heart could be answered. I don't know if we have, do we have a ministry team here. Okay, I'm just going to ask if, if the longing of your heart is the returning home of a prodigal who's been lost from the family, I wonder if you'd be brave enough to just come down the front actually because I think God wants to bring prodigals home as well as break new ground. And I think for some of us, he wants to restore hope that those prayers for those prodigals would be as if it was day one again. So if you've got, if there's a prodigal in your life that you long to see return to the Lord and you would love him to give you fresh hope for that person to come back to Jesus, I wonder if you'd be bold enough to come and join me at the front. I'd just love to pray for those folks. And if you're upstairs, just crack, crack on, come, come and join us down here. We are believing. We are believing the Lord's going to answer some prayers that feel like they've been long unanswered. They're not unanswered, but he's going to answer them in, in returning of prodigals. We're believing for that. I'm going to pray, but I just feel, I do sense there may be a few more. I'm not, no, for no benefit of my own, but just this is a powerful moment where someone will come alongside you and just pray for that, for that prodigal's return. So if there's any more, just come and join us at the front. Lord, I thank you. The only time you run in scripture is to the prodigal. The only time it talks about you running, rushing. The rest of the time, you're not in the rush we're in, but you rush to welcome the prodigal home. And I pray for my friends in front of me. Lord, I just pray that you would do something amazing, that you would bring back hope today. But I pray as well, Lord, that this church would celebrate the returning prodigals. That, we, that our posture would be like yours, Lord. Desperately expectant of the return of those who've known you and walked away. And I pray right now, Lord, that you would do something wonderful in the quiet space for some of these prodigals where no one's watching, no one's there. I pray there'd be an encounter with you. I pray you would break into situations and change them for your glory, we ask. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And then finally, if anyone here does not know the Lord Jesus, their personal Lord and Saviour, if you don't know what it is to be a follower of Jesus, you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. I'll tell you something, it's the greatest thing you can ever do. It's not the easiest, so let's not pretend that, but it's the greatest thing you can ever do. The gospel changes everything. That story about my grandma, you can lose everything, you don't lose Jesus. If you've never known the Lord Jesus, your personal Saviour, maybe today is the day you want to surrender your life to Jesus. But then also, there's a second, slight second bit to this. I did 14 years working for Youth for Christ. We constantly asked young people, if you've drifted, if your walk with Jesus has gone cold, if your Bible reading's non-existent, your prayer life's dried up, you haven't doubted this stuff, but you need to recommit your life because you've drifted from Jesus. We assume adults don't have that problem. But I wonder if for some of us, maybe also, as well as the first time, maybe we need to recommit our lives to Jesus because if we're honest, we still believe in him, but we're not living fully for him. 
So, so if everyone's eyes just shut for a moment, if, I wonder if either for the first time or as a recommitment to Jesus, you want to surrender your life this morning. The recommitment is only because it's gone dry. You, you walk, the Lord's gone cold. You need to kickstart it and go again. And the first time commitment is because you've never made this decision. If either of those are you, no one's looking, their eyes are shut. But could you just stick a hand in the air so I know if I'm praying for anyone? Just stick up nice and high so I can see. That's great. That's great. That's great. Now, can we keep the hands up if it's a first-time commitment? So I know if I'm praying for that. Thank you, Jesus. Wonderful. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in this house today, people have chosen to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that this house would be a great place for discipling people in the faith. I pray that decisions made in this place would feel as real at half 11 tomorrow as they do right now. I pray for those for whom it's a first-time decision. I pray, Lord, that, that you would meet them powerfully, meet them closely. I pray that whoever's brought them here, or maybe it was you that brought them here, Lord, I pray that we would do well at helping these people make the steps forward in you. And for those who've recommitted, Lord, I thank you that this is somewhere where we can come home again. And I thank you, Lord. There's no judgment in this moment. There's excitement because the fire catches light again. And I pray for everyone who's recommitted, there'd be no need to do that again because this would last, this would be real and you would burn bright in their hearts. And Lord, there's a party going on in heaven. Thanks for letting us join in.